Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined by my perennial dearly adored uh, co-hosts. We got the band back together. Um, (laughs) Co-hosts include Harvey Young of Boston University. Harvey, how are you doing? I I see that you are not in your typical recording situation. No, I am at home right now. It's a snow day for my kids. So we built a fort outside and it's it's a day with kids and snow. That's which that is pretty great, great, actually. Um, well, I, I totally understand the situation. I have been on numerous uh, video chat meetings recently, where one or another of my kid ends up in the frame, and it's it's delightful. Uh, can't complain about that. And we are joined as well by Sarah Bay Jung of York University. Sarah, I can't imagine it's not uh, very cold and perhaps snowy where you are as well, but you managed to make it to the office. <laughs> Well, that's because I have no more children to shepherd through snow forts and um, and such. But I will also say we don't get nearly as much uh, snow and cold weather in Toronto as I used to get in Buffalo. So as I like to joke with my new Canadian colleagues, I moved here for the balmy weather. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, it's great to see you guys. I hope you guys both had a good Thanksgiving uh, break. Although, Sarah, you I, I, you had I a did have a wonderful Thanksgiving break back in October when yes. when we you had Canadian when Thanksgiving. we here well, in Canada I, celebrate it. Yes. Yes. Well, I will try. You know, over the course of the year, I will figure out all the different curveballs that your Canadian uh, uh, essence now brings to the podcast. Um, today, listeners, we have three exciting topics to discuss. We read Fred Moten's essay, "Letting Go of Othello," in the Paris Review. Um, we watched. We were grateful to receive a sneak peek of E. Patrick Johnson's documentary, "Making Sweet Tea," um, a documentary that features E. Patrick Johnson and several of the men who appear in his oral history book, Sweet Tea, Black Gay Men of the South. Um, and so we'll talk about that. And finally, we wanted to talk about the future of the field, and it occurred to us that we would try doing something a bit novel um, rather than looking at certain trends and the job market as signs of, um, I don't know, uh, contraction, um, difficult times ahead. We we decided to think about the best case scenarios for the field, what we could see as areas of promise and excitement in theater and performance studies in the 21st century. Before we get to those topics, a couple of news items to mention. Um, Astro 2019 happened, although if you listened to the last edition of the podcast where um, Elizabeth Hunter guested in for Harvey, you know that at least half of it happened. Um, I am here to tell you that the rest of the conference happened. Um, there were many awards given out. We're not going to list them all, um, but I believe you can go and see uh, who won what awards, um, who the honorable mentions were, etc. Um, on the Astro website, or perhaps going through Twitter and looking at the Astro 2019 hashtag would, would give you a quick rundown of those awards. Conference co-chairs of 2019 Astro Conference were pleased. Uh, we're very happy to see that the conference took place, and, and it was a wonderful experience. One other thing I'll mention is that the um, program chairs and the theme for next year's 
Astor Conference in New Orleans were announced. The theme is theater and performance after repetition. Um, Soika Colbert, Doug Jones Jr., and Shane Vogel are the co-chairs for that conference. So that's very exciting. I'm excited about that theme. The other news item that I have is that On Tap will be making a return appearance at Circe, the conference uh, for research on choreographic interfaces at Brown University in March of 2020. We had a fabulous time recording um, at that conference last year and are excited to make our return appearance. Um, people in the New England area or even further away, if you are interested, you should try to make the trip to, to Providence, Rhode Island in March, not just to see us record, but to see the fabulous intellectual program that uh, Sydney Skybetter is putting together with his collaboration there. So at the beginning of November, right before Astor, um, Fred Moten's essay, Letting Go of Othello, was published in the Paris Review. And I saw this and I was really excited to read it. Um, I think Fred Moten's work is super interesting. It is challenging. It is complex. It is philosophy and poetry interwoven. And it was on Othello and the problem that Othello presents to black intellectuals, black performers, and um, I don't know, theater people in general. So I'm gonna do my best to sort of encapsulate the major statements or arguments in this, though I'll say at the outset that it's something you really have to sit down and read. Um, uh, Fred Moten writes in long acrobatic sentences. There's a lot of um, internal complexity even within paragraphs and portions of the argument. But basically the statement here is that for a black intellectual, for a black actor, Othello presents a problem. And it is a problem that Shakespeare is responsible for creating. Um, it is a, a sort of white fantasy of a black role, but one that Moten points out has continually presented a challenge to black actors, partly because it's a role that many um, very talented black actors have felt that they need to take on, partly because it's a role written for a black actor or it's a black role in Shakespeare. So there are opportunities to play it. And partly, as he points out, because not taking on the role is in a certain way endorsing the idea that a white actor would play the role in blackface, which has happened and, and happened um, over the centuries. So on the one hand, there's a strong impetus to take on this role and to find a an interiority, a soul, a, a real human being in Othello. But on the other hand, there's something funky about it. Um, and I'm paraphrasing Fred Moten there, but he uses the sort of language of, of flatulence, right? That um, Shakespeare has created an ill wind that um, generations of black performers have had to choose. Do I take this role on and try to make something of it that is um, satisfying and genuine and multidimensional and human, even acknowledging that there's a kind of trap in it because it is not, um, it's not a role written without racism, without uh, a, a sort of, I don't know, set of, of challenges and binds and constraints for the actor. So Fred Moten is reevaluating Othello um, as a problem um, and then he, the, the other major element of the play is a series, or, or pardon me, of the essay is a series of engravings by the artist Chris Ophelia. And these are entitled Othello. They are a series of um, etchings, I believe, in which a kind of 
rotund face of Othello in line drawings is heavily inscribed with images on the forehead of scenes from the play and and other items that are referenced in Shakespeare. Um, And the Othello figure is weeping. And so ultimately, Moten argues that um, Ophelia's treatment of Othello, treatment of the superficiality of Othello, um, treatment of the the way that things are sort of drawn on him and imposed on him, that this allows um, Moten and by ex- you know by extension his his um, uh, fellow uh, black artists and intellectuals to sort of let go of Othello, to sort of say this is not this problem does not have to be as vexing or as important as perhaps we have thought that it should be. So that's my effort to on the fly encapsulate what this essay says. I'm curious to know Harvey Sarah. Uh, um, what you found in here that was surprising, challenging, interesting, or, or problematic in itself? Well, I'll, I'll lead off. And for me, it's it's a complex article, and I believe it's a catalog essay for the Ophelia exhibition for that book. It's the introduction, if I believe, for the uh, Ophelia Othello series. And you know, Fred Moten does uh, the right thing here. What he does is he calls out the challenges with the character of Othello and notes that there's nothing authentically black about Othello and that Othello as a character is a construct, right? So he asks, and one of my favorite aspects of this essay is that he asks, like, what does it mean to portray Othello when the beauty and depth of that character uh, is still filtered through uh, a blackface, right? So it's the complexities of this character as received and noting that, you know, there are many African-American actors who've played differing figures within the Shakespeare canon, uh, but you know, have said, no, I will not play Othello, right? So we hear about those who have chosen to play Othello, but he sort of points out Sidney Poitier, Harry Lennox, and others who decide uh, uh, and justify their decision not to play Othello based upon the framing of him as this flawed protagonist. It's interesting that he, he mentions other Shakespearean plays. He mentions, um, well, Falstaff, the character of Falstaff, not um, the Henriette directly. Um, and he mentions Twelfth Night. He, he cites long quotes from, from that. In, in my mind, in my sort of, you know, college-level survey of Shakespeare mind, I always pair Othello with Merchant of Venice because here's another... Um, protagonist, though not a tragic protagonist, but a a stereotypical portrayal of this character. Um, But we, those of us who have you know, learn Shakespeare and appreciate Shakespeare, I believe, have been taught a kind of line about these characters, which is, yes, they're flawed. Yes, they're informed by negative stereotypes. Yes, that's a problem. But because it is Shakespeare writing them, there's depth, there's complexity. Indeed, human beings are flawed. And you get sympathetic um, approaches to both of these characters as well that allow you to redeem the portrayal if you choose to. So, you know, the the Shylock is not a sympathetic character, but when you read it, you can say, look at these great speeches in which Shylock gives his point of view um, from the the position of an oppressed group of a of of someone um, maltreated, and maybe it's an imperfect analogy to the way Othello has been treated. But you know, he's ultimately Othello uh, kills an innocent white woman. He's dominated by a, a, his his flaw is is um, jealousy, right? He's a sort of tragic figure, and yet 
he's sympathetic in certain ways. He's he he's not the villain of the play. He's the flawed protagonist. Um, I enjoy the way Fred Moten sort of dispenses with all that, right? To just call out the problem. Um, he doesn't dismiss the play as as being something that can't be done, or that or that actors in general or black actors should shy away from entirely. Um, but I enjoy the kind of I don't know, honesty about the problems of the character. See, and and for me, I think one of the things, and I won't claim to have grasped every nuance of this essay, um, but I think his his really interesting, the other side of comparison, um, because he specifically doesn't mention Shylock in the essay, which I think is a very common uh, uh, comparison to Othello. Rather, he compares Othello to Viola in Twelfth Night, and he talks about the way in which Viola, uh, on behalf of Orsino, seduces um, Olivia um, by projecting uh, a kind of uh, false desire and, in, and inadvertently, in the context of that plot, inviting um, uh, the return and, and, in that case, unwitting and, in, and unwanted reciprocal desire upon one. And then he compares that to Othello and what Othello says about wooing Desdemona. And in this way, at least what I kind of took away, and, and Harvey, I'd be curious how you see this, but the what I understood that to be was, was by rooting uh, Shakespeare's uh, racism very much as an intentional gesture and a, and a dismissal and a demeaning of Othello rather than a kind of noble... Um, you know, uh, warrior, and and looking at this as a context, you know, a culturally confined moment. It's like, oh, well, that's just kind of how he actually, by making that comparison, suggests that Shakespeare is setting up Othello in a very particular way by constructing a similar kind of false erotic feedback loop um, that I think undermines what Othello seems or claims to believe about himself. That the that the that the that the role is always uh, a false one, even at the moments in which Othello himself claims, makes claims to authenticity. Does that, I'm sort of curious how that aligns with with your understanding of this. No, it it totally aligns. And it's part of Fred Moten's uh, citation of Falstaff as well. You know, the idea that we have two characters who are put forward as having honor allegedly, you know, and, you know, Falstaff is, is, uh, there's a humor around that character that allows you to see through the facade to, to see through the artifice. Uh, whereas for Othello, you know, that f- false framing, that sort of thin veneer of, of alleged honor is continually dis- disrupted and challenged by how he is portrayed by Shakespeare, uh, in terms of how he's written his, his own dialogue, which is kind of self-deceiving. And then the actions of the characters around him. Uh, and that's the problem with Othello, you know, for Fred Moten. It's also the, the problem for Othello for me, because I wrote about this in Theater and Race uh, uh, in that book, you know, where the character itself is structured, you know, and, and and written in this way that just reflects and repeats the stereotypes around blackness or at least um, otherness, you know, at this time period. And that's the thing that Fred Moten and I and others have sort of talked about. Like Othello itself is a flawed uh, character that's sort of steeped in the uh, racism or at least the prejudice of its times. Now, the problem is that back when I was talking about theater and race, I was going on my, my tour as I was writing that piece. I went you know, sort of across the pond <laughs> to the Atlantic, across the Atlantic, and people would say, oh, like Shakespeare didn't have any concerns about race. 
But if you think about it, yeah, if you look at how this character is structured relative to some of his other characters, this false heroism, this, this false honor um, uh, that Fred Moten points out is, in de- is, is just a core part of this character. And you can't escape the, the blackface that is Othello. And indeed, the, the issue of genre is also important, too, because ostensibly, if it's a tragedy, you expect the, the main character to be flawed. But Moten points out that there are elements of comedy in it, and there are in other Shakespearean tragedies, but that the presence of carnival um, in the play suggests that, that there's really a kind of troubling of that generic line and that the... It, it, it's hard to read it as straightforward tragedy. Mm-hmm. And if you read it as comedy, then it's all the more. Right. And um, it's also like, it, it's, it's the character you don't want to play. Like, like sort of how many title characters are there uh, in Shakespeare that you don't want to play? Good point. Right? Like, I mean, like if, if you ask an actor, if they could choose, uh, you know, whether to play Othello or Iago, right. Like, right. You know, like they, they'll be like, Oh, not Othello. <laughs> You know, it's just it's it's not the meaty character. It's not it's not the complex one within the play. Indeed, and, and I thought the closing line of it is interesting. Or the closing couple of paragraphs. There are a couple of moments in the essay where Moten says, "Actually, it's appropriate for a white actor in blackface to play this." And I don't believe he's saying that is how this play should be staged. But within a certain way of thinking, it makes sense more as a blackface character than as a as a um, dignified role for a black actor. But then at the end, he doesn't say we should stop doing this play, but he says it would be wonderful to have to see a black actor play Othello without having to take responsibility for it. And, and, right? and so the, Patrick Stewart, the actor, uh, James Picard. No, John Luke Picard. Yes. Ah, John Luke Picard. John, John I, Luke I, Picard. I'm failing my own Star Wars trivia. Star Trek trivia. Oh, this is what happens to work from home. <laughs> yeah, <it's all> right. <laughs> you sort of lose right the edge. Uh, anyway, so uh, uh, Patrick Stewart had a production of Othello in which uh, he played Othello, uh, and it was an all-black cast. And I think that sort of flipping that angle, that approach, you know, aligns with what Fred Moten is saying, is that uh, you don't want to dismiss and do away with Othello, you have to acknowledge the the fact that the character itself is a construct that is flawed. Uh, So do something with it. Like, don't treat it as an authentic, realistic piece. Well, I think, I mean, and that's, you know, not simply getting rid of the the play or, you know, just kind of taking it off forever or never touching it again, I think is also really important because as he demonstrates and as we can kind of, you know, point to in any number of uh, moments, the the lack of of understanding around what um, what he identifies as the difference between an artist's portrait and an actor's portrayal, um, and the and those kinds of representational modes. Because I do think the the other thing about reading this essay is the the role that the images play, is Chrysophiles as he sort of works off of those and and you know what how those signify and how those take up meaning in and through the. The, the plot and the character of Othello. But if you watch the way in which we continually, um, and I, by we, I mean, you know, sort of society more broadly, continually take up racial stereotypes as costume, as performance, as just a joke, right? Um, and and fail to really understand and take, and take that kind of uh, 
act seriously precisely because it is is it is within the realm of impersonation for whatever in whatever context i think we we continually fall into the trap of othello and and not appreciating this this distinction of portrayal over and over and over again um which is for me where he kind of points the larger uh critical social relevance of of othello and and parts of the essay towards at the end I would be interested to know about the performance history of it, if in recent years it's been performed less. I have seen a production of this uh, at Trinity Rep, you know, 10 years ago, uh, a long time ago. Um, ART just did it. uh, Or no, um, I saw it at ART, but it was actually, I think it was the Oregon Shakespeare um, uh, production that was, I think, two years ago, a year ago. I can't remember. Well, with this essay out there. It still has that... um, appeal or at least the marketing aspect of Othello as being the play that is um, you know it's it's how should I put it every generation there's like a great black actor you know who you're waiting for them to play and, and have their interpretation of Othello right so it's like every generation there is someone and I think that this is the intervention that Fred Moten is making is that um, rather than saying this is one of those great pieces kind of like Porgy uh, in, in opera uh, like, let's actually think of this character as itself um, indebted to the sort of racialized or at least um, othering logics of its time. All right. So listeners should check out Fred Moten's essay, Letting Go of Othello, in the Paris Review. We'll put the link up on the website. We also um, uh, wanted to discuss um, E. Patrick Johnson's documentary, Making Sweet Tea. Um, As I said in the introduction, we were fortunate to be able to look at this. The the film is um, entered into film festival contests now um, in the documentary category. It's a it's a real treat, and I don't want to go on and on about it. I, I would like um, um, Harvey, if he's willing to to sort of serve it up for our listeners who probably haven't had the chance to to, to see it yet. Um, but Harvey, uh, tell us a little bit about the documentary. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Sweet Tea, or rather, the making of Sweet Tea, is a documentary by E. Patrick Johnson uh, and John uh, L. Jackson Jr. It's a documentary that activates uh, uh, E. Patrick Johnson's Sweet Tea. What you do is you, in the course of this film, you travel along with E. Patrick Johnson as he uh, tells his own story, um, you know, sort of growing up in Hickory, North Carolina. Uh, and you, along the way, also meet many of the men he interviewed in Sweet Tea, in the book. Uh, and uh, across about an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes of this really powerful, uh, you know, uh, engaging, highly absorbing and um, um, inspiring film, uh, you listen to everyday people tell their stories of what it means to be gay in the South, uh, men telling their coming out stories, uh, men talking about uh, the anxieties of the AIDS crisis, uh, men talking about, you know, what does it mean to be black and male and gay in the South? Uh, and it's an extraordinary insight uh, that, you know, I just found uh, captivating. Uh, panel, Sarah, what are your thoughts? Oh, I, I, I found I watched it twice because um, uh, I watched it by myself, and then I, and then I, I really wanted to watch it again, so I, I watched it with my partner. Um, I think it's a really uh, compelling, um, super engaging uh, documentary. The stories are really are really wonderful, um, but. I will say that I think that one of the things the documentary does does really well because it's also about about 
Johnson's own creation of the staging of the of you know so there's the book and then there's the stage play and then this is in some ways about uh, a film that details the making of both the book but but essentially the stage play so you watch him perform and and make certain kind of choices and, and you know it follows a certain kind of you know theater into film genre in which the framing is the making of the theater piece right and it sort of punctuates but one of the things that that I found most kind of captivating and and um, that I rewatched particularly is that he reperforms char- characters or he reperforms as men as characters back to those men as kind of quiet solo alone except for the presence of the camera and us events including to one man um, uh, Charles I think uh, who mm-hmm. has never been to see the whole show and those are always really interesting moments because I, I'm always wondering about what the ethics and the thinking and the and the decision making is about where to put the camera into what what are what are truly intimate personal moments and and I felt like the the film does a really good job of kind of holding all of its subjects um, with a lot of care and a lot of um, concern and regard and then also creating some really important moments of distance. Uh, that I found incredibly moving, but as a, you know, as a documentary, I think it also is really interesting in terms of negotiating its own kind of public role with with some really private uh, revelations that that I think I think they'd really do a masterful job with. I agree. I also found it really compelling. The last, I think it's like the last 20, 25 minutes of the documentary, it shifts into the performances that Johnson is doing for the subjects of the documentary, for his friends who have contributed to the book and the stage play and now this documentary. Um, And it's really moving. Um, There are also these wonderful little details about the points of contact. I mean, it's very clear that these men are his friends. Um, I'm not sure how many of them he knew growing up or before or, or whom he met in the course of doing research, but they're they're close and these are trusted relationships now. And so when he starts to do those performances, they're in different venues. Um, the first one I think you see is for Harold. Um, Harold is an old, I think a man who's older than um, uh, Johnson and who lives with his partner, a white man also named Harold. And there's this commentary about um, Johnson's sweater, which is part of his costume that he uses to play Harold. And Harold points out that he sort of misses his version of that sweater, right? Which is now, you know, Johnson has the costume version of it, but he misses his own sweater. Um there's and also Freddie, Freddie. I mean, all these characters, you get to know them pretty well, and and um, you're very fond of them by the end. When he um, performs Freddie to Freddie, um, Freddie's an artist, a painter, and Johnson actually sits down and appears to be painting one of his unfinished canvases in character as Freddie. So it's it's moments like that where there's the sort of material and personal contact. It, it really seems to transcend representation. In other words, I, I think, you know, you can think of um, Johnson's methodology as being comparable to Anna Devere Smith, who interviews subjects and then creates a role, and, and there's a kind of impersonation and a representation there. But the documentary shows how um, how personal the, the act of artistic creation is, um, both for, for Johnson and for the, the men who, whom he's portraying on stage. I thought that part of it was really special. 
and it's pretty rare for us to find ethnographers who return uh, to spend time and introduce us as viewer audience spectator uh, to the people uh, who are the basis of the work and and that itself is is fascinating you know it, it exists as partially a travelogue you know but it's also one of those things where when you think about what is the importance of the work that we do as theater performance scholars uh, it really shows the impact that it can have in terms of what happens when you can share a story uh, amplify it you know allow it to uh, impact communities you know far and wide and and there's lots of sub messages here right everything from you know the importance of a parent being accepting of their child um, um, you know for who they are uh, that's something right you know the um, the lessons that are learned in the kitchen the stories that are told uh, the lifelong friendships that are forged um, so you see it again and again within this piece and it's wonderful yeah it, it reminded me also of uh, perhaps uh, coming off of Aster and the sort of public-facing scholarship theme that we adopted, it's a really interesting and, to my mind, unique instance of public scholarly activity. This documentary is more will be more accessible to viewers than even the stage show and the, and the book on which it's based. And 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 Johnson's writing is all very accessible, and and um, I think it's meant to be for um, an academic audience, but also a broader audience. But because this documentary can be shown and distributed widely, um, it really can can um, educate people who aren't college students, who aren't professors or, or performance studies scholars. And that to me is one of the most interesting things about it. I'm not aware of other um, scholars in our field whose work has been able to go into these different media. Um, and it would be interesting to think, I mean, I, I must be I must be failing to think of, of theater historians who have appeared in documentaries, et cetera, contributed in that way. But it's interesting the way that there's the book, there's the stage show, and then there's this documentary. And it shows, you know, experiments in adaptation and translation between one medium and another that it would be interesting to see other scholars try to imitate. It's also demonstrates the importance of staying with a project. If you think about it, we often finish a book and then we race to the next one. And, you know, for E. Patrick Johnson, he's been working in some form on sweet tea for 12 years or more and you know what does that mean to to say that you know my commitment to these men their stories um uh, and making sure that everyone hears it i mean that's something that is is rare for us as scholars to do well you know you harvey race from one project to the next some of us finish something and then we collapse for a little while so i think you know um but I, I, but I agree with you, and I think the one of the nice things too is that when he is performing or re-performing um, portrayals back to the men um, that they are drawn from, he is also relaying the reception of those portrayals in other places. So it's not simply sharing his his interpretation, but also he he shares and talks and 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 reflects how those are received in different, in different spaces, in different venues, which I think is also really, um, is really powerful, you know, and, and I think does speak to what's the, the value of projects that, that um, are recursive in a lot of ways, right? That keep, that go and come back and go and come back. I, I enjoyed seeing 
um, the accounts of these long multi-decade relationships as well. I think partly that was striking. You know, it's it's 2019, um, and the Harold and Harold in particular, who had been together for I don't know more than 40 years, and then were able to get married in 2015. It's just it's so touching, and um, it, there's a lot in the documentary that is is surprising and and wonderful, and and the I don't know the the pacing and the and the tone of it, the music, it, it makes for this experience that's uh, very pleasurable. So um, I hope that everyone gets a chance to see it soon. So we also wanted to discuss the field, theater and performance studies. We're on the cusp of a new decade. Guys, it's going to be 2020. Um, <laughs> we won't get uh, into and, a debate about whether that's the new decade or the first year of a new decade or the last year of the old decade. Oh, wait. So, like, maybe 2021 is the beginning of the new decade? Well, oh, it depends pish, on how you're posh. counting. I, you know, everybody gets excited I, I, with numbers <laughs> turnover. But yeah. I, I won't hear of it. I won't hear of it. 2020 is a new decade. Um, Don't you remember we uh, all did this with the millennium, you know? So. <laughs> yeah, I barely remember that. Why um, uh, k so, <laughs> Yeah, I, I do remember that, though. Um, so we wanted to talk about the the prospects for theater and performance studies in the future, and um, perhaps because we have a habit of scrutinizing job market stats, and journalists and academics perhaps have a, a tendency to prognosticate pessimistically, and perhaps there are good reasons for pessimism. We wanted to see how we could think of the future in terms of its potential and its and its possible um, optimistic outcome specifically for theater and performance studies. So, um, Sarah, do you want to lead us off and sort of give us your um, rose-tinted glasses view of the future of the field? Absolutely. So, I, you know, <laughs> I, am, I am nothing if not an eternal optimist. Uh, so, so, yes, as panel says, I think one of the impetus, uh, impeti, um, behind behind this was was you know as we come to the end of the semester and also as the you know job market is has more or less fully unfolded by the beginning of December um, we get into some of the same kind of debates right uh, the number of jobs the more things that are demanded in each one um, and so uh, we don't mean to dismiss or be dismissive of of that nor the you know, precarious situation of many of our, our colleagues throughout the field. But it seems to me that, that there is a, there are always two ways of thinking about the future, right? One is to sort of look at what happens right now and think, oh dear, this is the, the loss of everything that has come or the turn away from things that were better in the past. But there also seem to be, I think, some positive signs. And, and so to think about our field less as a kind of dystopian real, you know, reality and more as um, a form of speculative fiction. <laughs> so how might we project ourselves into the next 10, 20, uh, 50 years of, of <clears throat> excuse me, uh, theater and performance studies? And so I'll, I'll make a few broad opening salvos and then I'll invite my colleagues to, to join us in this. Um, I will say that the first big thing is that um, theater will survive um, by being absorbed within other disciplines. And that standalone theater departments um, will probably still exist in some form, but will be more or less uh, um, 
superficial as such and will have the the vast majority of the actual work that is now done in theater and performance studies absorbed into other into other areas. Um, I'd like to go on record by saying that I think, you know, in 25 years, departments as we know it will have been dissolved and there will be some other kind of organizing structure that um, uh, within within universities around which we we gather and coalesce and and I think uh, I'd like I think it would be really interesting if that were flexible and something that not that one attached oneself to through uh, decades of a very specific training but but brought a variety of different kinds of backgrounds and then were invited to engage and kind of move in and out more or less fluidly over the course of a career um, following one's interests and also new things that emerge in the field. I think climate and sustainability are likely to become um, the new uh, to the next few decades what critical theory has been to the last few. Um, and that if, if you're not doing some major work in and around these issues, um, then I, I think it's, I think the work that doesn't take this up in some meaningful way is likely to fall to the margins. Those are my big prognostications for, for the future of our field. What do you guys think? What are your big unsupportable claims? So, Sarah, this is super interesting. Um, although I do feel like this is more of a Blade Runner future than a Star Trek: The Next Generation future timeline. Um, <laughs> but maybe we have to go through we have to go through Blade Runner and RoboCop to get to um, the Star Trek future. Um, but I'm I'm being uh, insincere because I actually think it's a it's a positive and interesting image because of the notion of kind of institutional flexibility, institutional adaptation to present um, conditions. Um, I think I, my sort of exercise in thinking about the future did not have theater departments sort of being relinquishing subject matter entirely to other fields. But what I am imagining is that the present trend where theater history is, it's still practiced in theater and performance studies departments, but um, the a lot of that really good work is being done by scholars in literary fields and even history departments who are looking at theater as an important object. So rather than thinking of that as something lost and something very you know tragic and we should fight to keep theater history done within these departments that are actually all very small, that we should embrace the notion that the study of classical theater is happening in classics departments and French theater history is being done in French in, in um, you know, French departments, et cetera. Um, why would that necessarily be a bad thing if the theater and performance studies departments keep a tight hold on practice, on theory, um, on um, the, the really complex and difficult to attain insider knowledge of what theater production is. Because in, in my mind, if we keep practice active, if we keep the study of the art form um, very intensive and we preserve the knowledge of the sort of unique intellectual terrain of dramatic theory and performance theory um, and also things that that are not recognized by literary departments because they're not as text-based if we keep a firm grasp on those things and keep that knowledge fresh and growing the the scholars in other departments who are working on what we think of now as theater history are going to need us they're going to need our books and our expertise um, to make 
better claims about the complex objects that they're looking at. So one thing that I wanted to, you know, sort of put out there was that it's not necessarily um, a terrible thing if theater history is being shared between people with our degrees and people with um, subject matter expertise in different languages and time periods primarily. Um, and another is that I'm actually bullish on the idea of theater and theater departments surviving and, and thriving when you look at the fields that are having a really hard time now, you know, judging by numbers of majors or degrees conferred or the job market, um, theater and performance studies, though it's tough out there, I, I recognize that, um, is not suffering the same contraction, I believe, that other fields are. Um, and that, to me, suggests that the the predictions that theater is a dying art form and that um, it's being replaced by other media and students are going elsewhere, that those have been exaggerated, that I do believe there's an enduring appeal to um, theater as a creative field and also an intellectual and scholarly field. I think there are things that we do, project-based learning, um, uh, expertise in communication and the the medium of liveness or whatever um, that we have a firm hold on as a sort of disciplinary domain um, and that the, those are going to continue to be valuable, perhaps especially because the world is apt to change in the 21st century um, and technology will change and um, theater is something that can be translated into other media and then the knowledge that we specialize in can be um uh, valuable in a changing world, so that's that's my rosy tinted view. Harvey, what do you what do you think about our weird predictions, and um, what are your own? I like them, uh, and 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 with an asterisk, I will say that you know what I'm what I'm suggesting might be something that could happen in 25 years from now, not tomorrow or next year. I just have to put that out there, especially since I'm a dean <laughs> overseeing an art school. And yeah. uh, I do uh, think that, you know, in the long-term future, it's hard to imagine theater and drama departments being standalone departments. And it seems more likely that they'll merge with film studies and television studies. It's just, there's so much overlap across the two fields um, that especially when you start moving into animation, acting for the screen, stuff like that, there's a, there's a natural synergy. So I would imagine that if I were to think about a university set up 50 years from now that I would see fewer and fewer universities that have separate film departments from theater and more united and linked. Uh, in terms of publishing, uh, we're, already seeing, we're already noticing that uh, dramatic criticism isn't really having the same impact that it, it had 50 years ago. And that even if you go to conferences, you'll find more work in performance studies than in theater history. So I wouldn't be shocked if we find that um, the type of work that gets created tends to be more performance studies based, which means that there will be more of a gap uh, around theater history. So we'll still have our Shakespeare scholars, we'll still have musical theater scholarship, kind of the scholarship that, that has the potential to reach large audiences uh, that you know, could be sold at Barnes and Noble, uh, but uh, more generally are, are read uh, by large groups of people that might be in bookstores, uh, you know, within theaters at least, those sort of the theater owned bookstore, uh, like the Goodman Theater or whatever else, like the, you know, you can buy a Lion King stuffed animal and you can buy, <laughs> you know, a more popular uh, criticism book. Uh, so I imagine that will happen. But, you know, I do think that the days of like the deep history of the 1960s drama are, are going to go away. Uh, so I imagine that that occurring as well. 
that's 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 that those are my my thoughts really and in terms of phd programs it's increasingly difficult for universities to fund phd programs so i wouldn't be shocked if there are fewer phd programs in the future uh and it's just going to be from um probably like the leading producers in terms of not numbers but job placements so uh the places that um have been most successful in the past in terms of launching people's careers will continue to have those programs and those that have struggled might be less successful in the future so these seem to be sort of sober, rational. Um, uh, Are you, I just got rid of all the departments. I don't know how this was a rational. And just just to be really clear, I feel like I need to interject. Um, uh, today's speculative fiction is not tomorrow's policy proposal, right? So just saying, to all of my colleagues who are listening and are suddenly concerned, right, that I am like, you know, about to yeah. explode our, our current faculty structure. Well, I, I get with other deans that I speak to, I get the hints of this idea of organizational, sh- you know, new governing structures that reduce the number of departments. I'm wondering if you guys are all talking to each other. Um, but while it, what I, where I was going with it's this is the secret not that... black book of dean <laughs> dark arts or whatever. I know you guys are out on dean chat. Um, uh, so I was going to say these seem to be sober and rational prognostications, not necessarily optimistic, though. I feel like both of you are, are predicting the the reduction in number of independent theater and performance studies departments and PhD programs. Uh, no, no, um, no, not at all. I, I, I do not. Even if, even if, even if uh, I don't see the I don't see the the decline or a declining number of standalone theater departments as as particularly a bad thing. I I. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the, the model I would look to is I, I think Arizona State University is really interesting in the way that they uh, really effectively broke down not only barriers between departments, but also between different um, uh, decanal divisions and areas of the, of the university. I mean, they've, they've created all kinds of really interesting combinations of putting, you know, theater people and astronauts together and, um, and, and really building. So, I mean, I do think there are actually some, some models of this kind of, of process that have been, I think, really interesting to follow and, and kind of exciting. So I, I would not, I mean, any kind of change is always about things that are lost. And so depending on how closely attached we are to the things that exist in their current formation, then yes, the loss could be very, could be very sad. Um, but I think there's a, there's always a flip side to that, which is that new things are uncovered and, and, um, and developed. And I think there's a possibility for investing more rigorously in those, um, as, as new, fun, interesting, but, but admittedly very different configurations. So are you suggesting less sort of single disciplinary scholarly training and more, um, I don't know, modular learning and interdisciplinary research projects that then yield scholars who are ready to join a, a new array of university structures where you might be in a humanities unit, you might be in a, you know, theater, art, music, television, media unit, you might be in a interdisciplinary arts cluster or something like that. Is that what you're sort of imagining? I think you're operationalizing my fantasies way too specifically there, panel. <laughs> um, uh, you know, oh, oh it, yes, it, you, can't, you can't be I, that, signed on to yeah, any of this. That, I mean, that, that certainly is, is one way that you could do that. I, I, I guess I'm, I'm looking at fields that increasingly feel like 
Um, there are lots of people doing very similar or complementary kinds of things in lots of different places. And so I do think that as, as, as not just our field, but as all fields and many of the arts fields emerge and grow and shift and change, that you're going to see some new kinds of uh, configurations and particularly new generations of scholars wanting to form different kinds of uh, mm -hmm. attachments to one another that are not necessarily based in our current disciplinary structures that we have today. Okay. Um, all right. Well, with that thought, we'll we'll let Sarah sign off. Sarah, you can just email your draft to all of our listeners, um, uh, or, or, or Harvey and I will <laughs> extra interesting drafts this year. Uh, uh, Sarah's got to run to her next. That's right. Meeting. I do. I have a meeting in which I'm going to try to you know not dismantle my entire faculty. So. <laughs> um, I don't think you've done any irreparable damage. I, I, um, I really hope not, but but believe me, I'll know late. I'll know soon. Anyway, uh, <laughs> always great chatting with you guys. Um, my draft is a new book, "The Artist in the Machine: The World of AI-Powered Creativity" by Arthur I. Miller. Uh, I'll tweet about it later and, and talk. Anyway, wonderful seeing you guys. Take care. Take care, Sarah. Um, Harvey, let us let that be our transition right into drafts. Uh, what's what's your draft for this edition? Yeah, my draft uh, goes back to this, uh, um, you know, the issue around audience and dramatic criticism slash performance studies criticism, and and it goes to uh, the drama bookstore in New York City, and how the drama bookstore, which is you know coming back into its new. Um, new life, a new incarnation, uh, you know, with the support of Lin-Manuel Miranda and others, uh, is, is going to be, you know, uh, a great new reading center place for work, but it's also be a place where they're not looking to, uh, actively, uh, sort of promote or include, not promote necessarily, but to have on the shelves a significant number of books related to theater and dramatic criticism. Uh, and the idea for that is that the books cost more money, uh, than plays, uh, fewer people buy them. And it's just not a profitable um, venture uh, to include lots of books from dramatic criticism, you know, which makes me wonder, again, what is the future of dramatic criticism when the drama bookstore uh, you know, yeah. is, is hesitant to uh, put books by theater historians, theater critics, theater scholars on its shelves? Um, you know, and, you know, that concerns me. That concerns me when the place that should have shelf after shelf of every book ever written, you know, uh, at least in terms of in current circulation about the history of theater, uh, chooses not to do that work. Um, and even if you say it, it won't sell necessarily in large numbers, having one book that might sell uh, to represent the diversity of ideas uh, is better than having nothing at all. Uh, and, that, and that's and that's my that's my draft is uh, what does it mean for our field when you know, our bookstore doesn't include our work. And, that, and I'm not talking about my work. I'm just talking about like the work of critics at large, right? Now, so when you're talking about dramatic criticism, you're thinking about the sort of genre of the review, right? And, and a writer and intellectual has consumed a piece and is writing a sort of evalu critical evaluative, evaluative essay about it, as opposed to you know, pe people with PhDs diving in and creating. No, I, I, well, know, I'm, I'm thinking argument. more generally about. Um, you know, a, the book on, um, I mean, it, it could be on a, a genre within theater. It could be on historical period. It could be on a single playwright. Uh, that sort of, the, the deep dive 
that a person who um, either engages with a text or multiple texts does, you know, to enlighten a reader. Like that's what I'm thinking about in terms of dramatic criticism, you know, which, you know, could fall into the, um, you could align with literary criticism in a way, right? We think about uh, all the books that will appear on how to uh, engage with, understand Shakespeare, for example, like, like those books still circulate much more widely than uh, the rest of studies on theater and performance studies. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder about the broader genre of criticism at large. I mean, with the with the disappearance of regional newspapers, there were fewer professional critics employed. There were few people sort of consuming and reproducing that genre. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm not thinking about necessarily newspaper criticism. Yeah. I'm thinking more of just yeah. um, like when I go right to Barnes and Noble, for example, and I go to the theater uh, and performance studies bookshelves and you know on this shelf i see plays by shakespeare shakespeare anthologies i see um maybe one book on uh, you know images from broadway musicals from the last five years and that's about it right so maybe it might be a shelf it might be two shelves uh and that's the entirety of the documented yeah. representation of of book length studies on theater and performance studies and we have an entire bookstore that's dedicated to that, you know, what happens when you lose your theater history? What happens when you lose your theater criticism? What happens when you lose your theater theory? What happens when you lose performance theory as well? That yeah. is the thing that I've been thinking about. What's your draft? It's a it's a point of evidence that would support Sarah's prognostication about our expertise sort of being um, absorbed into other fields, right? Um, but thank you for that. Um, my draft is a it's a trifle. It's not uh, as, as um, significant or or weighty or as complex as is yours. Um, I will, I, it's about um, Henry V, though. In a way, it goes back to Falstaff. Um, it's just about the movie on Netflix called The Crown, which I checked out because I was looking for something to watch with a historian friend of mine, and, and it looked like good popcorn um, entertainment. And it is that. It, it stars Timothy <laughs> Chalamet in the, um, in the role of, of Henry V. What was strange about it, and the reason I bring it up on the podcast, was that I have only ever consumed the story of Henry V through Shakespeare's play, through Henry V. So the familiar beats, the tennis ball gift, and the you know the rousing St. Crispin's Day speech, and the account of the invasion of, of Normandy, etc. It's all things that I only know through the Shakespeare play. And here is this film that is not the Shakespeare play, but it's telling the same story of the sort of, you know, coming to power of and, and education of and triumphalism of Henry V. And I don't mean to suggest that it is going to change your life or, you know, um, that it's not deeply problematic in a host of ways, but man, is it expensive looking and the costumes are incredible and Timothy Chalamet is amazing and Robert Pattinson is great. And I think it was an odd experience, a unique experience for me because I think because I had consumed the Shakespeare story, but because this was not Shakespeare, it felt fresh and familiar at the same time. Um, so I, I recommend, uh, uh, the King. I did. I have, I been calling it the crown. No, you called it the crown. Yeah, The Crown is actually the BBC series about Queen Elizabeth II. I enjoy that as well. But the movie that I'm actually uh, uh, speaking about is called The King. Oh, that, 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 that's 
that changes my perspective. <laughs> that changes everything then. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the crown is its own is its own thing. I know. And, I thought you loved um, the crown, but <laughs> I do. No, I do as well. But but the crown is a 20th century story, and the king is a um, oh boy. Now I'm going to forget uh, an 11th century story. Okay. Um, at, at any rate. Well, so well, I Hardy... said Jean Luc Picard was in Star Wars, and I called him James Picard. So this is, <laughs> that's this right. is one of those days because we're. <laughs> because I, we are all too busy. This will not be edited before release. All of the blemishes will be in the recording, but we, we can take it. Um, listeners, we hope you have a happy December, happy holidays. We'll be back uh, uh, um, on your podcast feed in January. Take it easy. <laughs> Bye. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast. Podcast.